Tonight's scripture is a reading from Psalm number 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall. How they said, tear it down, tear it down down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. The word of the Lord. Watched a lot of stand-up comedy while I was away. I, I don't doubt, I mean, I know that there is really a lot to be said for self-control. For exercising self-control, being composed, like, emotionally, being restrained. But, you know, somehow I'd rather hear about that from Buddhists than, like, Scandinavian Lutherans. Zen detachment has always sounded good to me. I mean, I don't have it, but I think I kind of would like it. Some sort of resolutely kind and peaceful freedom from ego. But that seems very different than Scandinavian detachment. Scandinavian detachment seems like, like frustrating, like very frustrating to me. Like, I know there's some sort of continuum of things. There's, there's frozen, cold, cool, warm, and hot. You know, I always kind of like the way Miles Davis turned his back on his audience when he played. He turned his back on the audience, like, like he turned his back on Western civilization, man. He was so beautifully cool. But, you know, if I'm at the co-op with my kids and we're hungry and we're in a hurry and my son breaks a jar of pasta sauce and I'm feeling a bit, like, heated and some white middle-class urban hipster who thinks he's cool tells me to, to just be cool. That makes me feel, let's say, frustrated. No, Miles Davis, so Miles Davis invented cool. It's a, a sort of resistance to official 
culture, the empire's culture, racist, white, square. Miles wasn't going to, like, perform for, like, the man. No. Just turn his back and play his horn. Cool. But now cool has become like the official culture, right? It's like the global phenomenon. It's like the central ideology of like consumer capitalism. Cool. Cool was one thing when Miles Davis did it so beautifully. It was a little different when the children of white privileged majority put it on. Now cool is manufactured by corporations. Products are cooled and uncooled to regulate the economy. Gestures and speech patterns and postures um, and nomenclatures and nonchalance replicated and replicated and replicated. Cool used to be an attitude fostered by rebels and slaves and political dissidents people for whom open rebellion invited punishment. So it hid behind a wall of ironic detachment, distancing itself from the source of authority rather than directly confronting it. But in the hands of merchants of cool, it's become practically a form of social control. It's not really so much a silent, knowing rejection of racist oppression any longer. See, that's how the empire's machine keeps working, always churning resistance into its gears. I read that business leaders are now starting to, like, quantify a country's gross national cool. It's like they have this formula. It's a combination of pop culture and film and food styles. Really, actually, the government of Japan actually thinks that its economic future really can come from its gross national cool level. And its gross national cool will be the engines for its economic recovery. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Uh... It's a long way away from Jack Kerouac, 1957, right? 1957, Jack Kerouac was already realizing, was already saying, nothing can be more dreary than coolness. Secretly rigid coolness. It's like all he could do was sit on the side of his bed in despair, realizing that all this was about to sprout out all over America, even down to the high school levels, and it would be attributed, attributed in part to him. Maybe ironic detachment is making us drones of the empire, limiting our emotional range, dampening some honest breadth of emotion, quelling rage. Ironic detachment isn't a very powerful tool against the empire anymore. It sells Max. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm all for, like, crazy, outrageous, right-wing folks cooling down a little bit. Maybe lowering the temperature. I wouldn't mind seeing some people on the Fox network with a little ironic detachment. 
But maybe there's a lot of people who could like stand to turn the heat up a little bit. A little bit. Who could like lose their cool every now and then. To lose their coolness. And maybe it might be a good thing for the world. I don't know. Protestant white male theology for about the last 600 years has often made it seem like morality requires that one be disengaged from one's emotions. Is that really how it works? To get it right? To disengage from your emotions? There are a lot of forces that promote emotional restraint. The Psalms are not one of them. The Psalms are not emotionally contained, restrained, or detached. The Psalms, if you read these Psalms sometimes, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. Reading them, you might begin to think that there is just some, like, uh, weepy, confused, sometimes barbaric landscape just under the surface of all humanity, just under the surface of any sort of, like, biblical composure, if there could be such a thing. Uh, Throughout, really, the whole book, there's this vile, cursing, violent, ranting, juxtaposed with quiet, calm moments, reaching towards some sort of peace or comfort. These these things, things, these psalms are confusing. They're jumble. One minute it's like all sweetness, and the next minute it's like raging and vile. If you're not feeling Psalm 137, the sadness and humiliation and outrage of the Israelites forced into slavery in Babylon. And there's really nothing else there. I mean, <laughs> this psalm is not systematic theology. It is not detached reason. It's like the sadness and anger and humiliation and vulnerable sort of dignity and graphic curses, all that made into... A poem. Psalm 137 is not restrained. It's really, really, really sad. And it's really, really, really angry. Kind of seething, clenching your teeth sort of angry. It's a slave's song. It's an anti-song, really. The whole thing is about not singing. The giant crushing empire of Babylon had violently destroyed these people's homes and their hope. And they've been taken into the heart of the empire and they've been made slaves of the empire. And they're slaves, they're slaving by the waters of Babylon. And you know what this means? This isn't like, you know, down there at the beach. They're slaving at the waters of Babylon because Babylon had this huge, intricate system of canals and irrigation ditches and plumbing the, the beginnings of Western civilization, some say, that system. And they had running water to remove all the empire's excrement. And the Hebrew people are being forced to do this labor, cleaning the waste from the canals that carry the excrement and refuse of the empire. That's what it means when they're by the rivers of Babylon. They're being forced to do this labor, cleaning this waste, And while they're working, or maybe it's break time, their captors, slave drivers, the poet says their tormentors, say, sing us one of those songs you guys do so well. Sing us one of those songs you got. 
you know, we know you, we can, you can play the music. The poet says our tormentors ask for mirth, like some sort of vicious request for a minstrel show. So the poet is very angry. The poet is very emotional. The poet is very dramatic, certainly. He will not sing to this audience. He says, better his plain hand wither and his tongue cling to the roof of his mouth than he play for this man, these man, the man, or even accommodate or forget what the um, empire has ruined. It's like he's calling a curse down on himself if he ever forgets. Imagine your tongue clinging to the roof of your mouth. He says, let that happen to me if I forget. It's a bizarre and graphic curse. Like stuff my throat with my own tongue and make my right hand useless if I ever forget what these people have done to my people. He believes it's absolutely essential to remember, to not detach somehow from the violence the empire has perpetrated against his land, against their souls. So the poet is feeling it. The poet is feeling it, reminding himself, reliving it so he can feel it. Of course, feeling something and violent fantasies of revenge are on a continuum. Maybe a little different, but maybe not that different. Like if you've ever actually seen your children's heads dashed against rocks, But so, yeah, the poem ends on this note. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. That's feeling something very, very strong. That's very, very violent. And it's kind of crazy. Like, how is that in our scripture? How that's in the Bible? How is that in our lectionary? This is what's read in churches all over. It's a blood-curdling curse that this poet of God calls down. Like, what kind of people would make this book? Definitely not white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, German theologians. Can you imagine a situation where they could have collected this particular kind of crazy collections of songs and poetry to be used in worship or ceremonies where you'd sing and chant them. I mean, some of the things that are in the Psalms are just just outright violent and cruel and beyond belief. Happy may they be who dash your baby's heads against the wall. Let his days be few. May his children become orphans and his wife a widow. May the Lord wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God... Wipe them all out. May curses enter the innards like water and like oil in his bones. Oil. Can you imagine like this worship ceremony where they come together and they sing these things together? It seems like they're just like come from some weird ancient cult. Which is kind of because they come from this weird ancient cult. Curses and candlelight, dead birds on the altar, blood, feathers, bone. It was a long, long, long time ago. And people smelled different and ate different. 
and they kept sheep in their homes. And a lot of people believed in curses and spells, and cursing was actually an integral part of life. Ancient Near East texts are filled with curses, with treaty curses and inscription curses and incantations to undo curses. That's what people did. They called down curses. It was a sort of weird, ancient, cultic thing to do. But I'm not saying we've made, you know, like a lot of progress from that. I grew up in a church where on Sundays, the youth pastor would like set us down. And this one Sunday, he drew this picture of a train. Maybe you've seen this. With three cars on the board. Uh, The first car was called Fact. And that car was the engine. Fact is the engine. And the next car was called Faith which was pulled by fact. And then there was the caboose, feeling. And the point of the illustration is that you needed the facts that we know were true beyond the shadow of a doubt, and then you needed the faith that was pulled along by that fact. But caboose, the feeling, you could probably cut that off and the train would still run fine. It's a different kind of weird We have candles and curses and bones seem kind of all right compared to these boards with train illustrations and the authority telling us to go ahead and cut our feelings off like they don't matter. Faith, fact, as long as you got the engine of fact running strong. Infants and little ones and mothers with children are dashed to pieces one place and then another and another all over the scripture and in the world. There's a lot of violent imagery splayed across the pages of scripture. There's a lot of unfettered anger expressed. Do we say it shouldn't be there or that they didn't really mean it? Um, Or should we probably clean it up or somebody should have cleaned up this language? But you know, true, there's plenty of editing went into this book over a long, long period of time and they never took it out. They never took that violence out. The violence remains firmly as part of the scripture. How does one react to the brutality imposed by the empire? Feeling nothing doesn't seem to be helpful. Or even not feeling much, coolly shifting through the refuse of the empire's canals, making the system run, doing its labor. Composure has its limitations. The Psalms don't always look on the bright side or keep on the sunny side. People say, a lot of times these days, you've got to lighten up, move on. This poem calls down a curse, if you forget. The tormentors ask us for mirth. They wanted to be entertained. The Romans famously said, at the height of decadent, the decadent empire, all you needed to keep the populace from acting up was bread and circuses. Give them enough food and entertainment, and you can contain them. The Hebrew people made this psalm a part of their canon. They kept using it long after the immediate crisis seemed to be over, and they still use it. Because maybe the crisis did sometimes seem like it was over, but then Israel was faced with the temptation of denial, the pretense that there had been no loss that there had been no wilderness. But who really cares, you know? We have social media now. 
So a lot of the earth is becoming uninhabitable. So the air is becoming unbreathable and the water undrinkable. Although the quality of TV has never been better. Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian and biblical scholar, says um, the return from exile, the way out of slavery, out of the claws of empire, begins with an emotional act of civil disobedience. An emotional act of civil disobedience. To be emotionally disobedient to the empire. I mean, I don't really know what that means, but I just want to do it so bad. I like how it sounds. I think we should all do it. Emotional act of civil disobedience to the empire. Brueggemann says instead of a fearful, striving, self-preoccupation, you have to re-enter the pain of the world. It's sort of counter-cool. It's a little bit of a theme these days in the cultural ethos, in the feminist movements, in the Obama administration. When someone calls for the payment of reparations to black Americans for slavery, people say, you've you got to move on. You can't dwell in the past. Moving is hope. Let's move forward. Hope is moving on. But that's not the feeling in this text here tonight. It doesn't mean that there's not some truth in some other text for another night, but this text here tonight is very dramatic. It's a very dramatic plea, and it says, we need to make that loss in the past present. We need to feel that. This psalm is about not singing. It's better to lose your playing hand and have your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth than to forget or accommodate or detach. You know what's weird and kind of beautiful, actually? Even though the psalm is about not singing, how many times and in how many ways this psalm has been put to music? Verdi put it in an opera, and it became an anthem for Italian counter-revolutionaries. The Irish sang it. Don McLean, you might remember his version from Godspell. Rastafarians, his version I'm sure is going through your head right now as we speak. For the Rastafarians, the waters are the Atlantic Ocean and Zion is Africa, where their fathers were taken into captivity and shipped to the Caribbean to be slaves. Rastafarians sing a lot of psalms, actually. They like the emotive, unrestrained, revolutionary vocabulary. Music is their political tool. They use it to chant down the enemy, the Babylon system, the corrupt machine of the empire. Rather than taking up arms, they sing some crazy songs. I don't know if it helps or not. The empire makes slaves. It oppresses, limits murders, destroys, it destroys lands, it destroys souls. If you have to live in the midst of it, if you enjoy its privileges, how can you participate in its undoings? 